Alright, welcome back to Real Talk Unleashed, the Real Ass Veterinary Podcast for Real Ass Veterinary Professional. My name is Caitlin Sharapova. I'm Tasha Stark. And I'm Michelle Pavahouse. And today we have an amazing guest with us, Dr. Amy Pike. Dr. Pike is a veterinary behaviorist in the Northern Virginia area. She is currently the co-owner of two animal behavior wellness centers, one in Fairfax, Virginia, and one in Richmond, Virginia. She actually got her start working with military dogs as a captain in the U.S. Army. She was also the head veterinarian for her base's veterinary clinic. And after leaving active duty, Dr. Pike was able to further her love for behavior when she began her residency program. After three years of seeing behavior cases, taking courses in psychology and advanced animal sciences, she became one of fewer than 70 boarded veterinary behaviorists in all of North America. As a veterinary behaviorist, she has dedicated so much of her time to improving the education in our field. She's written various articles for Clinician's Brief, Pet Quarterly, and The Team as well as being interviewed for other articles in both periodical magazines, online forums, and newspapers. She's Fear Free certified and serves as a member of the Fear Free Advisory Committee and also an instructor for e-training for dogs, an online education program. She's also a mentor for her own residents and was an editorial advisory member for the American Veterinary Publication. Since moving to Northern Virginia in the summer of 2016, she has dedicated her work towards building a network of behavior resources. As her influence in the region grows, she is working to expand prevention services with her support staff by providing socialization classes and patient handling workshops for other veterinary professionals. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Amy Pike, you can visit her website at abwellnesscenter.com. And without further ado, Welcome, Dr. Pike. We are so excited to have you here today, and it is so good to see your face, even though it's over Zoom. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So one of the questions that I submitted to Caitlin um, is uh, if you could share like, with, um, with veterinary hospitals, like if you just had a direct line to all of the <laughs> staff in the veterinary hospitals, what would you say is the ideal time for veterinarians to refer behavior cases to you? The moment that they feel uncomfortable with it, period. Okay. Like if it is like even just the mouthy puppy, send them to us. Like we will, okay. we will take it. We will help you. Like I have a whole team of trainers and nurses and they may not necessarily have to see me, you know, if they mm -hmm. don't need medication or whatever at that point in time. But the moment the client says something that you're like, mm, that's kind of beyond what I need to deal with. Like, like I tell clinicians all the time, I hated surgery. I hated it with a passion. Mm -hmm. Hence why I'm a veterinary behaviorist. I don't have to touch a scalpel blade ever, but like if it wasn't a laceration repair or a dog or cat neuter, or maybe a cat spay, I was not going to do it. I was going to refer. And like, if that's your comfort level, if you're like, Ooh, mouthy puppy, I don't even know what to say. Send it like right away. And don't, don't assume, especially with puppies, that they're just going to grow out of things because we right. grow into our anxiety, not out of it. And so right. this is just going to get worse. You have to refer. And especially too, because we have a six month wait list, right? right. Like right. you're not going to get in right away. And so in that six months, potentially things are going to get worse. So get them in right now. Mm, excellent. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I have an end of COVID puppy. I have a seven month old Conacorso. Oh and, my gosh. Uh, we got her in April. And uh, one of the things that was really scary for me as a veterinary professional was getting her out and getting her socialized yeah. when she wasn't fully vaccinated. But one of the ways that I was able to do that was um, I would just take her like blanket 
uh, and go to Lowe's mm -hmm. and put the blanket in the cart, in the shopping mm -hmm. cart, and then put her in the shopping cart and Perfect. drive her around the Lowe's. And we would go through the automatic door opener and we would be in all the areas around forklifts and stuff like that. And, you know, that was one of the ways, because obviously with having a Conor Corso, you definitely right. want your dog to be socialized. Absolutely. Absolutely. She has never met a stranger. She loves awesome. every single person she's ever met. Um, she is still like suspicious of people when she's in the yard or in the house. Mm -hmm. But when we're out walking, she literally tries to drag me to people to meet them. So that's amazing. <clears throat> good job. It was, really, it was a really good and we did the same. Uh, I waited until she had had her third set of December vaccines before we went to the pet store. Yeah. We did the same thing, put her in the cart, didn't let her paws touch the floor and drove her around and let people see her and let her see lots of different things. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that is, that is so big because even still to this day, no matter how hard we try as veterinary behaviorists, I still have veterinary professionals that recommend not taking the puppy anywhere until okay. all their vaccines are on board, which is potentially 16 weeks, which is way, I mean, we are too late at that point in time because that socialization window has completely closed. And that's the biggest issue that we're seeing with these COVID puppies is because nobody had anywhere to take them. I mean, I did get a very heart of the pandemic um, COVID pup. It was a planned puppy, but it just happened to be. And even as much as I know, you know, how much socialization we need, I struggled because you're not meeting people. She, heck, she was used to people's faces and masks. So that was like not an issue, but she wasn't used to people without masks. Um, we just didn't have enough places to take her or interactions and she struggled a little bit, um, especially cause I was going to uh, recommend Michelle, especially right now, cause you're about to go into a secondary fear period with her, or her, him, I didn't, her, her. Yeah. yeah. So I thought you said, so, I mean, that is, that's a really, really big issue when we're hitting around eight to 10 months of age is like things all of a sudden can start to be very scary. And so getting them out of that fear period as positively as possible. So it's not just about that early socialization, it's about continued socialization, but that is a thousand percent why I am now booked six months out um, in during this period is because of all that that happened or lack uh, thereof rather. Wow. Yeah. The rescue that I work with did a really good job of like educating um, all of the puppy owners. It's honestly like I've never seen a rescue do all of the work that this particular rescue does. You know, they actually did contact all of my references. That's they actually awesome. did come do a home visit. Uh, they contacted all of my veterinary references and then they put you in this group and uh, they have a, a certified trainer that is a force-free trainer nice. and she does weekly videos. Uh, she does them live on Facebook in wow. the Facebook group. And, uh, and then obviously there's the recorded ones, but with Corsos, like, you know, they've got a lot of dogs that do have behavior yeah. issues and they've got yeah. a lot of dogs that have scary and dangerous behavior issues. Yeah. And these are, you know, big, powerful dogs. And so they really, they do a wonderful job at trying to help people through some of that stuff. And, you know, unfortunately, some of the dogs that they're picking up from shelters are already adults. And right. so then they got to have, they have to work through all that stuff. So it's wild. I've never been, I've never worked with a rescue that's, that does as much due diligence as this place does. Yeah. That's fantastic too, because I mean, traditionally a lot of kind Corso owners and also potentially rescues would have worked with like a, a punishment-based 
training facility because, oh, they're big dogs. You need shock collars and prong collars. And like, that is the last thing that you want to do for, for any dog, let alone a dog that potentially has fears. Um, and so that's awesome. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. Have you getting a little bit off topic? Have you heard about the Tina Frey case that's happening in Louisiana right now? No. What is that? So there's this, uh, trainer, uh, and she is a force-based trainer and, uh, some videos leaked out onto social media of, Uh of her beating dogs. So they had a dog, uh, Corso on the leash with leashes on both sides. So two people, and the woman was literally beating the dog Mm. in the head with a switch. Um, and so I think that now the police have actually, uh, they're investigating her. I don't know if they've brought charges against her yet or not, but God, I hope so. It's insane. Yeah. I mean, and that's obviously the, you know, the extreme end of things. Right. But like, even just like, I see the detrimental effects every single day of dogs that have had shock collars and prong collars of like all the fears that they were never able to overcome. They were just, you know, behavior was suppressed and then all of it, quote unquote, all of a sudden they're aggressive. Right. And so, and people pay thousands. I always, I always kind of joke because I'm like, man, I do not charge enough because these trainers are charging literally thousands to ruin these animals. And then they have to come see me for, you know, less than $500 for me to fix them. Right. Like it's terrible. It's terrible. You know, I, I hate how prominent the shock collars and prong mm-hmm. collars are. I, I can't remember when I was talking about this with somebody, but I was searching for, I think I was searching for a flirt pole for mm-hmm. Celine. And one of the first things that came up, even on Chewy was yeah. a shock collar. Yeah. And you know, they, they come, people have no idea how to yeah. use them. And literally yeah. they're just getting frustrated and like hurting yeah. this dog. And, you know, I, I argue with people on the internet because they'll be like, well, you know, balance training is really where it's at. And, you know, if I only gave rewards to my kid when it was being a brat and I'm like, this, that's not what this is that's about. That's what and, it's about. Yeah. And, and the other side of it is that, you know, you're not taking the time to, to explain to the dog what you mm-hmm. want the dog to do. Yep. You are simply expecting a behavior yep. and the dog has no idea what you want from them. Exactly. And they don't speak English. No, no. Yeah, it's so sad. It's so it makes me so sad to think about I I couldn't do what you do. I honestly couldn't do what you do because I would literally want to murder people. Yeah, there's some days. The owners are usually the issue. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because they're lazy. It is very lazy training. Indeed. That's like, I don't know if you guys saw my Facebook post the other day, I, I had a little eight pound Chihuahua come into the clinic with a prong collar on. And I'm like, if you cannot get an eight pound Chihuahua to not pull on leash. think it is lazy you know these people the the board and trained facilities the the clients don't have to be involved yep. at all yep. they don't have to put in any effort at all yep. all they have to do yeah. is pay money and you know people have more money than sense yeah. and so you know they pay the money they send their dog off the dog comes back and you know and and they think it's a win humans want the easy out totally, yeah, and there's totally. No personal accountability that way you don't have yeah. to face what you are doing that contributes to the problem and to the behavior yeah. that you're trying to yeah. Well, and they, most of these guys, um, offer, uh, guarantees too. And there is no guarantee when it comes to behavior. No. No. Like if there was, I would have the most perfectly behaved dogs, right? They're dogs. My kids are kids. Like it, 
you can do the best you can right. behavior. There's so many factors. And so like, but the funny thing is, you know, the clients that I see that have been through this and then like, you know, they, the behaviors recur obviously, because that's, what's going to happen. Um, and they're like, when I called them back about the guarantee, they were like, well, you're not doing the work. So it's your fault. So, you null and void the guarantee. And so now all of these thousands of dollars are out the window and they and still have to come free. It's mm-hmm. crazy. It's crazy. Wow. And then they have to wait six months to get yeah, in with exactly. you. And then they're frustrated. And then when they yep. get to you, they yep. don't want to listen. It's just, it's mind boggling. No, I mean, thankfully, I'll be honest. Like I love doing behavior and specialty medicine because by the time they get to me, they're pretty ready to listen. Like okay. they are, they're ready. They know this is bad. And, um, you know, they're, they're making that big leap to come see the veterinary psychiatrist, quote unquote, which is kind of a weird thing for most people. But sure. I joke that if I like told them to, you know, howl at the moon every night, they'd probably do it just because they're wow. ready to, to figure this out. So, sure, thankfully. Sure. so what do you, so what do you say to the client that comes to you that's done the shock collar training and then their dog is there? Do you, I mean, like, how do you walk that tightrope? I mean, they're not professional. They're not very professional. So I feel like I would just park the bus on them, but <laughs> I, handle that. I would totally park the bus on their asses. It is, it is a little bit of a fine line, right? So I kind of meet them where they're at. Like number one, I talk to them about potentially like weaning off these tools, right? Like we're going to wean off the shot collar. We're going to wean off the prong because most of them feel like that's the only reason this dog is behaving, which is actually what's happening, right? So we talk about how we're going to do that. And then I also, I use a lot of human analogies. Like, um, you know, I use one a lot that I'm like, if you have a boss that you don't like, right. And you're sitting in your cubicle with your cube, cube mates and your boss comes in and starts yelling at you guys. Well, when your boss walks away, you, you know, give him the bird and, and uh, roll your eyes, right? Well, your, your cube mate can put a shock collar on you. And every time you give them the bird, they shock you. All right. You may stop rolling your eyes and stop, you know, flipping your finger off because you don't want to get shocked. Right. But that doesn't change the underlying emotion. And that's our goal is to try and change that emotion for these animals. And they're like, Oh, that makes so much sense. Right. Like, absolutely. So, I mean, even though it's very anthropomorphic, um, I do use a lot of human-based analogies because we only speak human. Right. And so they don't really understand the dog world or the cat world either. Right. And I do see that a lot of um, the places are still teaching dominance. I mean, how, yes. how do we break that cycle? I mean, and again, I was taught dominance in school. Yeah, so was I. It's. I mean, it, Cesar Milan is still on TV, right? Oh my God, I know. Yeah, yeah. Right. Cesar Milan makes good television shows because it's so drama filled, right? right? Like how many times has he been bitten? I've, I've been bitten. I've seen in practice since owning Animal Behavior Wellness Center, I've seen 4,000 new patients and yeah. I have been bitten twice ever. Wow. Like ever. He bit, gets bitten almost every episode, right? So it makes good television, but uh, like uh, it is, it's not how we should deal with animals. And, and one of the things that I tell people is like, we are the only species that would assume that we create dominance hierarchies with others, right? Cause we're humans and we're the top and whatever, but like animals don't create dominance hierarchies with other species. Hmm. lions don't dominate hyenas like no matter what the lion king wants to tell you right? Yeah, right, right. like that's just not how it works in the animal world <laughs> so so yeah it is a myth that will just never die and so you know like i see those names of these trainers it's like alpha pack whatever i'm like oh i know what kind of training you do because right. all bitch, in the name sorry. <laughs> yep. sorry, that's pretty much yep what doing? Mm. 
unreal. But when I, I, I cringe now, but again, I mean, I graduated, you know, 18 years ago and I was taught dominant. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's going to be hard to excuse the pun, teach an old dog new tricks. Yeah, you know? no, it's fair. It is fair. Yeah. I mean, I was, I, by our behavior resident, we were taught to alpha roll our puppies <gasps> and put prong collars on the pups. I mean, it's come a long way in a very short period of time. And, sure. you know, just like veterinary medicine too. Like I remember being a technician 30 years ago and every patient that came through the door got a, a pred and batrel injection. Mm. Didn't matter what they were there for. Right. Mm. And now we know like antibiotic resistance obviously is a huge issue and we are much more cognizant of that. So even in our field, it's changed in 30 years. Like why wouldn't it in behavior too? Right. Right. And I think, you know, I mean, I feel like vet schools when I, you know, I don't know about your curriculum, but we had like one class on ethology, one class mm -hmm. on behavior, and we were expected to know all these things. So I think some of it too, it's kind of like dentistry and veterinary medicine where totally. they give you one course um, and then they say, okay, here's your first full mouth extraction on a cat with stomatitis. Yeah. And the other thing is making sure, because again, I feel like every, I would say at least twice a day, the clients that I am talking to for wellness are going over behavior things. And I literally yeah. just pass your card out. I'm like, call me your because I don't fucking know. <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's so true. You know what I mean? So I think yeah. too, it's, it's kind of like, you know, when, when we're trying to talk about addressing issues in our profession, we got to really figure out where some of these issues are stemming from. And maybe people don't believe us as much when we talk about behavior because they kind of see that every time they ask us, we're like, call Dr. Pike because we don't, we're not taught this stuff. <laughs> You know, it is, it is really sad to me. Like, like you said, dentistry and behavior are probably the top two things that we see as general practitioners. Yeah. And what are the top two things that our schools don't teach dentistry and behavior? And it's because in my opinion, behavior is not a money-making entity for mm -hmm. university. Right. And I get it. They do have to make money. They have to, you know, pay for clinicians, all that kind of stuff, but it's so important. I mean, some of the veterinary schools have like diplomates um, that like travel there and teach a weekend course, but many don't. I, I didn't, I, we had a behavior resident, like I said, and I think we got a semester of behavior our sophomore year. Yeah. And it was obviously very antiquated, you know, 20 years ago, but still like it was an elective too. That's the other thing is most of these classes are electives and you just, you can't teach a course of behavior in 16 hours. Like, let's be oh, honest. So oh, I, I kind of don't blame clients for not believing vets in that respect. Yeah. Right. But it is, it is really sad. I, I do put a lot of blame on the veterinary schools, honestly, because they're just, they're not giving us these students enough. So. And, and they even have like, you know, I, so last year I participated on the, uh, they do the accreditation review thing or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, it's almost like, the elephant in the room like nobody talks about it yeah it's time to like review the curriculums I just I don't know how we get them to understand that we just we need more to be able to help our clients whether it's money making or, or not I just like we I, at some point we're spending $250,000 on a degree we should be prepared to, to walk out into practice and be able to talk thoughtfully about a lot of these things because you know I mean I I would definitely say for me once it's past the point of like, you know, my, my puppy's being mouthy, like at that point, I'm like, here's Dr. Mike card. And so, and it's not very many veterinary behaviorists, hence, you know, the six month wait list. Right. right. Yeah, there's I, only 90 of us. So like, we can't all just be in universities. So I get that, but right, it's, right. 
yeah, it's definitely something we've talked about it as a college. Like, what do we do to get the information out to these vet schools? And we've even talked about like putting together like an ACVB curriculum that we mm. record and send out to all these colleges. But honestly, the re- the reception for it has been minimal. And so we're like, why do we bother putting putting right, this all together right. and the time and effort that it would take, right? And and yeah. all of us are for the most part, most of us are in our own practices, right? Uh, and so we're busy, obviously, trying to make a living and, uh, and see all these millions of patients that we have to see. So uh, why would we try and, you know, put in the effort when the universities don't even care? Wow. No, I, I, I totally get it, you know? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty sad. That's crazy. I thought there was like, when you said a shortage of fluoxetine, I also took fluoxetine. <laughs> You're like, like, oh, no. <laughs> I need to call a pharmacy right now. <laughs> right, right. Um, all right. So then I think uh, we also have the same question, but for clients. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is one tidbit of knowledge that you could share with clients? Yeah. Oh, gosh, that's a really tough one. There's so many it's things. Good question. So <laughs> many things. Um, I really do think it is about socialization and knowing that you have to get out there and be very, very proactive because that is going to give you your best shot of having a behaviorally stable animal later. And it's not a guarantee again, behavior, right? Like I have a giant schnauzer and just like Ken Corsos, they have their propensities for behavior issues. Right. And so I socialized the heck out of him. And when he was about five months of age, we had a trauma incident in, in his mind. Um, we were at a church function and a high schooler with autism ran up to him very quickly and was like, you know, doggy and like gave him a hug. And from that moment on, he was fearful of strangers. It only mm-hmm. took one time for him. He was a one-time learner. Um, cause they, the smart ones have anxiety. Dumb dogs don't care. They don't have anxiety. So get a dumb dog. That's another, um, tidbit of knowledge. <laughs> so true. So true. Um, but it, it is so, so important because the foundation that you lay is going to be your best chance of success for these dogs. And the same is true with cats. Like cats need socialization too. It's a smaller window. It ends about nine weeks of age. And so, and it is much harder, obviously to socialize cats. Um, but like my daughter's cat, she took her in a stroller. She put a harness on her. Like she did all the things to make her a much more behaviorally sound, um, adult at seven years of age. She loves going outside and, you know, hanging out with my daughter and having like a picnic out on the yard, you know, like those types of fun things that we don't often do. One of my questions is what happens if you, if a client misses that window, because I hear myself like doing these puppy visits and I'm like, you know, socialization ends at 11 weeks and the puppy's like 16 weeks of age and we haven't done anything. Like where do we go from there? Yeah. That's when they really need to get a trainer involved. Um, someone that can walk them through actual desensitization and counter conditioning, because that's a very different process. Their, their threshold is going to be very, very low. So basically they have to be under threshold for that. And so they need the guidance of a professional support system. Um, so that's when I would go to a trainer right away. So if they're like a great puppy and I can't just, I mean, I know this is like the lazy way. I can't just think of a puppy kindergarten class. (laughs) So unfortunately, most puppy kindergartens aren't going to take them that, that old. Um, So puppy Hmm. play style changes at around four months of age. And so 
puppies at four months of age can be way too rough for the little ones. Um, and so there aren't very many like teenage puppy classes um, for that reason, because they can be a little bit uh, bossy. So, I mean, it is, it, it really, even if they're like a quote unquote normal puppy at that stage, I would still get a trainer involved because they're about to go through that secondary fear period in a few months. And that is potentially going to be very disastrous for a dog that has had no social. All right, so I'm going to increase the number of people I'm sending to you then. Totally. Okay. <laughs> and so are, are those, okay. So just so that I'm talking to clients, um, not knowledgeably, but if I can get that out on a Sunday morning. Um, so if we've missed that window, if the puppy is 12 weeks and I'm going to see it for its first visit. So I would say to them, you know, at this point we need to, you know, have you go to training. Is that something that I send to your technician or like, as far as, you know, no, getting so there's a lot of really great trainers in the area. So making sure that obviously they're a force-free, um, positive reinforcement based trainer okay. that they can, you know, potentially take a class or, um, you know, do some one-on-one -on -one sessions, that kind of thing, but having someone sort of professionally also keep an eye on that dog, um, as it sure. then kind of comes up through that secondary fear period is going to be really important. So no, doesn't necessarily need to see me unless you're seeing aggression already or anxiety already that definitely needs to come yeah. see me, but you can totally send it to one of the great training groups in this area. Those are on your website, correct? The um, I don't know that we have them listed on our website, but I, I do have a list. So if any, you know, local veterinarians ever want like my list of recommended trainers, sure. I'm happy to send them. So if you can send that to us, I would love to put totally. it up with the podcast for our yeah, totally. in the area because yeah, I, I don't happy know that to. I even, yeah, I have that list. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I think it's really important to share that with as many people as possible, because mm -hmm. again, I think there are just so many <clears throat> trainers out there that are offering a quick fix and those are not the ideal places for these dogs to go. Not at all. Not at all. <clears throat> so secondary fear period, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And, and this is a selfish question because it's <laughs> related to my dog specifically, but so we, uh, we waited for her to have her first heat cycle to even think about doing a spay. We we're trying to balance the risks between mammary cancer and the osteo um, issues with her hips and her and elbow dysplasia because a, a lot of kind of corsos end up with elbow dysplasia. And so, <clears throat> but then that puts me in a situation where I'm in her secondary, potentially in her secondary fear period and how like catastrophic would that be? So should I wait until that's over to have yeah. her spayed? That's Absolutely. what I was thinking. Yeah. So the goal is essentially to have her do the laparoscopic spay and pexy, mm -hmm. but at the mm -hmm. same time, it's still that whole experience of going to the vet, having the surgery yeah. and all of that stuff. It's traumatic. And, and I do think that that's honestly one of the reasons why you see so many dogs that, you know, will spay and neuter around six, seven months, right? Like that's been very traditional in the, in the field. Um, and then they don't get seen again until like 14, 16 months for their next round of shots. Well, the last experience they've had with that vet is complete trauma, right. And complete trauma right on the verge or in that secondary fear period. And so I do think part of the reason so many of these animals are fearful coming back to the vet is because of that really sort of poor timing. Um, so yeah, I just did this with my Airedale. I waited until she was totally, she had had her first heat cycle. She was completely through that fear period. It actually was really interesting. I, I was very, very obvious with her. Um, when she came through it, it was like, oh my gosh, she stopped barking at all the other dogs and she stopped barking at people coming into the office and, and that type of thing. And then I was like, okay, now we can spare. So, nice. and she did great. 
she did great. I mean, we had our PVPs on board, obviously, um, very big on fear free and went to a fear free clinic and all that kind of stuff. And, um, she did fantastic. So awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Can we go through some of those? I know you mentioned the fear period and the, you know, the initial like puppy socialization window. Can we talk about for the clients that are listening, who may not have like an idea of when those periods are and just kind of like share a timeline? Totally. Yeah. So for cats, um, socialization is from three to nine weeks. So, you know, if you foster kittens, um, that's the perfect opportunity to do it. If you are an owner of a kitten, you oftentimes don't get it until seven or eight weeks. So you only have a couple weeks before that window closes. Um, we haven't really identified a secondary fear period, um, at least sort of anecdotally in cats. So I don't know if they actually have one or if it's maybe less obvious than dogs. Um, for dogs, the socialization window, thankfully, um, goes a little bit longer. It's from three to about, I say average 14 weeks, because for some dogs, it's about 12, some it's 16, probably has a lot to do with breed and size and, and that kind of thing. Um, but around 14 weeks is pretty average. And then secondary fear period is kind of variable for some dogs. It's like anywhere from seven to 12 months. And the interesting thing is there's no actual research that says this is the secondary fear period. And the reason is um, because in order to identify the socialization window, the studies that had to have been done back in the 40s, 50s, 60s are not good welfare for animals. What they had to do was they had to isolate these puppies and these kittens from no human contact, no other animal contact and kind of figure out when that window closed. Um, And so you can't do that now. Like it's just, it's not good research and not for the animal's welfare. So, so there isn't actually any research paper that says this is secondary fear in these animals, but I will tell you almost every veterinary behaviorist absolutely believes that this is true. And you can see it in these dogs, like Michelle, you're going to, you're going to see it in a couple months and I'll be interested to hear what you're seeing, but um, it again, around seven to 12 months of age. And the hope is that we can get them as positively as possible out of that fear period, but it is a lot of work. I think it's actually more work than the socialization because it's all about keeping them under threshold and using high value food as like, um, you know, no, 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 we're going to redirect and distract and all that kind of fun stuff. And then behavioral maturity happens around age three for both cats and dogs. Um, and that's when they become adults and pretty much what you see is what you get with behavior when you become an adult. Cause that's when, you know, you solidify your likes and dislikes. And unless there's like a trauma event of some sort, um, pretty much all your behavior is fairly static at that point, except if you left, if you have severe anxiety or not even severe, mild to moderate anxiety, and you leave that untreated. So that definitely can get worse with time, but, um, like noise phobias typically crop up around age two. And that's, you know, because we're still, um, not behaviorally mature and animals decide, oh, that thunderstorm is actually pretty darn scary. Um, and so it's not unusual to see that. If you have a behavior concern happen after age three, and again, it's not like the animal had anxiety the whole time, um, and and there was no quote unquote trauma event, that is a medical issue until proven otherwise. Yeah. So after age three, like any sort of, um, you know, noise phobia that crops up, anything like that. In fact, there's evidence, um, one of my favorite research papers out of the last couple of years is um, the uh, connection between noise phobias and pain. And what they did was they looked at 
10, and it, behavior studies, unfortunately, always have a low number of uh, in participants. So they had 10 patients with osteoarthritis and 10 without. And they found the dogs that had osteoarthritis developed noise phobias much later. And they also had a higher um, incidence of noise phobias than the dogs without pain. And the dogs with pain or without pain rather um, had developed their noise phobias around age two, which is really typical for those. So, so if you see a dog all of a sudden have at age seven thunderstorm phobia or like startling at things when, you know, people drop a book or whatever, you need to be identifying where a pain source is because that's probably what's going on there. Wow. I know. Like I just haven't even gone to vet school. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It is one of my favorite things. Pain is really underdiagnosed in animals, in my opinion, as as far as like behavior is concerned. So like we, we have now a digital thermal imaging camera so that we can identify sources of possible like heat and inflammation in our patients. Cause number one, I can't touch 90% of my patients cause they come in, you know, they're quite aggressive, obviously. So if we can take pictures of them and like kind of identify areas of concern, then we can send them back to their RDVMs for further diagnostics. But pain is absolutely a big contributor to behavior issues as is GI underlying GI issues. I, I was joking with my nurses the other day. I was like, I'm I think that every patient that walks through the door should just get a prescription hydrolyzed formula diet Mm -hmm. and Visbiome probiotic just to start. Like we'll just cover our bases on GI. And for pain or something. Absolutely. I do a lot of pain control trials for sure. Wow. That's insane. You know, that kind of, uh, it makes me think about this case that I saw recently on a local rescues uh, page. So this dog, grew up in this home with this family. Uh, you know, I, I don't know for sure how old the dog was. I want to say it was over two. Um, and so lived in this house with this family, everything was fine. Something happened and they ended up having to rehome the dog. The dog went to the shelter. The dog was adopted by a family, went home. Everything seemed to be fine, but then the dog bit a, the child. And everything that the rescue kept posting said something to the effect of like, I guess the child was very loud. And, and then the dog ended up having like a severe ear and skin infections. And so they were kind of maybe attributing the dog's discomfort in its Mm -hmm. body and the, and the ear infections. And then this like screaming child, and that's why the dog bit the kid. Yeah. Every, every behavior has a threshold and above the threshold, you're going to see the behavior and below you're not. And so anything that makes you more irritable is going to, what we call trigger stack you. And so if you are sort of, your baseline is writing right under your threshold and you have an ear infection, that's going to put you over and you're not going to be tolerant of it. I tell people this all the time. It's like, think about yourselves on Friday after a really tough week at work, right? Your husband comes home and he's like, what's for dinner, honey? And you're like, nothing, make it your damn self, right? Like you are trigger stacked. And so like our goal is to decrease that trigger stacking for that patient in any way that we possibly can, including obviously really not medical. Right. I've definitely seen, and, and over the years, owners will come in with their small dogs at allergy season and they're like, my dog is just more aggressive right now. Mm-hmm. He's snapping at the other dogs. And I swear so many of those dogs have had, had anal gland issues. And so, and yep. I absolutely, so I tell people like when your dog, especially if it's like a jack or like the smaller breed dogs that start getting irritable, one of the first things I'll do is check their anal glands. And I tell owners mm-hmm. like, this might be really bizarre, 
But I can tell you, and I would say in 90% of those cases, just treating the anal glands and their allergies, those dogs have gotten better. So it's funny that you totally. see, that. I, I, you know, I've never written this up or anything, but <laughs> yeah, where to go is so true. More irritable. But then if you think about it, like when we have allergies, like my eyelids are all swollen today, I feel like crap. I will cut somebody today. Yep. Like yep. if anybody talks to me, I will straight cut exactly. them. So exactly, um, that totally makes sense. And again, I feel like I haven't gone to vet school, <laughs> but I, I definitely more cognizant. When people say, you know, like the dogs are getting more testy. I mean, I had a dog, it was a um, a dog with allergies that was snapping at the kids and the dog had raging ear infections. Yeah, and, so, totally. and, and the kids patting the dog on the head and all the owner sees, you know, I don't yeah. know how they can smell the ears, but that's God, a whole no other kidding. story. You know, that's, that's a whole other story. But yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And maybe that's, you know, when people are, are saying that their dogs are having these behaviors, I'll definitely become more aware of putting them on pain meds or looking for GI yeah. disease. Because I I didn't, I didn't know to do that. So yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the gut and the brain are very intimately connected and the gut or I mean, the immune system in the brain too, even in people like I, I get eczema in my like fingers when I'm stressed. Like I can tell actually when I'm more stressed by, if I have eczema going on. So, you know, is, is it the, the stress led to the eczema or the eczema led to trigger stacking? I don't know, but it's, you know, they're very closely related. And I heard you say biome. Is that you know I, I I'm learning more about that one from yeah. the ADA conference. Or do you do you use that one more than? Yeah, that is. It? Yeah, that's my go-to. I mean, it is the top probiotic recommended by our GI specialists. Um, mm-hmm. and and I've actually done some research with the with the company and with some microbiologists out of uh, George Mason looking mm-hmm. at probiotics in behavior and. Like I said, I think everything just needs to go on this biome the moment they come through the door. So, yeah. so I guess even for some of the patients that um, you've seen that I don't know, like there are my patients that are not on it. I probably should just throw them on it. Probably it's not a bad it's idea. easy, right? Like it's easy. It helps skin issues. Like there's some research on skin. Um, there obviously a ton of research on GI, but even in the human world, um, kids with autism, their behavior is improved with probiotics. So I think it's one easy intervention and obviously not harmful in any way, shape or form. So that's funny you say that because one of the patients that, um, one of our, um, like patients that we both see, he has skin disease and GI disease. Um, there you go. This biome. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm sure we'll, we'll do that. I have some samples, so we'll, we'll start passing Perfect. that. Okay. For sure. That's I'm I'm mind blown right now. This is my <laughs> I feel like I should get some credits for this or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you get a, you get an hour of race CE for yes, listening to this yes. podcast. That was awesome. I mean, they're wow. they're the ones at all the conferences that we went to that had the little poop things, the little poop. Uh, yes. Oh yeah, I've seen those. Yep. And those that has to be refrigerated too, if I remember it correctly. Does. That- Okay. Yeah, all it right. does to knock all those probiotics that are out there, but even in the human world, the refrigerated probiotics are supposed to be the best of the best. So, huh. yeah, I don't even know any human ones that are refrigerated. So maybe I should throw the ones out of my cabinet. This biome you do now it's, it's actually, they have, they have, a, human they have a human one. Yeah. It was human first. And then they, huh. they, um, went huh. into the veterinary market. question about a uh, reactive dog. So yeah. uh, what would you say to clients who struggle with reactive dogs and may or may not be aware of the services that you offer or may or may not like, I, I feel like 
the general, you know, Joe client is not going to know about your services or is mm-hmm. not going to feel like my dog's not bad enough to go. And right. I, I think they may not be aware of all of the plethora of things that, that you guys offer. And so mm-hmm. if you could just, if you, again, if you had a direct line to every human uh, pet owner's brain, yeah. what would you say about people who are struggling with reactive dogs, whether they're reactive to animals or reactive to humans, what would you, what would you say to them? Yeah. So reactivity stems from fear and anxiety. Number one, they're not trying to be bad. They're not trying to be willful or spiteful or stubborn or any of those types of things. They actually don't have the capability for those types of emotions. Their brains are not as developed as ours. You have to think of them as like an 18 month old, two-year-old child kind of in brain development land. And that when it, stems from an emotion like that, that is where a veterinary behaviorist needs to intervene. So whether that be um, through just behavior modification, teaching them an alternate incompatible behavior or desensitizing and counter conditioning or intervention with medication. And, you know, whether we intervene with medication depends on a number of different things. It depends on, can the owner keep them under threshold? Like maybe they have a backyard. The dog doesn't have to be walked until we teach them all these alternate skills, right? Or if they live in an apartment and they have to go out for every single elimination and they're they're in a very dog-friendly building and the dog's reactive to other dogs, we may need meds in order to make that change for this animal because they cannot avoid and they cannot be kept under threshold. And, And that's where medication plays that role. So again, whether it's like a nuisance behavior of like a puppy that's house soiling and we can't get that under control all the way up to the animals attacking the people in the house. Um, that is what we deal with. We deal with the whole spectrum. And like I said, I have a whole team of people. It's not just me. It's my nurses who are kind of like, you know, I have a veterinary technician specialist in behavior as well as three um, licensed vet techs. We have four trainers on staff who we have reactive dog class um, where we just do just reactivity towards other dogs. We have everything puppy. We have puppy socialization, puppy skills classes. Um, We're developing a confidence class right now. So we've got all kinds of things out there for all these animals, no matter what the issue is. And I'm, of course, a huge proponent of all of our local great training facilities too. Um, And so if you start there, and the nice thing about positive reinforcement trainers is that they're really good at understanding and knowing when it's out of their wheelhouse. And they'll say, you know what? actually, this does need to go see Dr. Pike. Um, So even if you just send them to one of those training facilities or one of those trainers, they can also kind of help you gauge, like, is this severe enough that it needs the veterinary behaviorist? But seek treatment. Like, you are not alone. You're not the only one with um, reactive dogs. Our reactive dog class has, like, a list of, like, 100 people that need to enroll in it. We cannot do enough reactive dog classes right now. So you are not alone. And I think a lot of people feel like, they are alone when they have this <clears throat> dog with behavior issues. Again, I have dogs with behavior issues, so you're definitely not alone. Um, but just seek treatment. It's there's help out there, and um, you know that's what we're here for. That's amazing. Thank you very much. I will t- say this is a this is a side note. I called uh, your sister office here in Richmond. Yeah. That's where I live. I called them when I was getting the puppy and I was like, you know, can I get a list of trainers from you guys for this area? And they highly recommended the Richmond SPCA and that's yes. where we took her. Awesome. They're amazing. They, I mean, so they have the, you know, the baby puppy classes and then they have like the, the good puppy number two. And then they recently just started that adolescent, like 
you know, surviving puppyhood class, which was amazing. They have reactive puppy classes. It was like, I didn't, I had no idea that. Yeah, they do a really good job there. there. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. There's so So many resources out there. They're the reason why Selena is as well-behaved as she is. (laughs) And kudos to you. Like, you know, again, many kind of course owners are going to go straight to those prong collars and shot collars. Like, yeah. If I could, if I could throw the, if I could throw them all in the trash, if I could, if I had a magic wand, and I say this all the time, I mean, even when I was in practice, like I, I wish I had a wand where I could, whatever the human does to the dog that, that Mm -hmm. would that be then inflicted on them. So they would understand. Cause I think that's, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that humans, they don't necessarily think about it and they have, they have higher expectations of the dog's behavior than they should. And so just sitting down and having that conversation with them and being like, you know, this is where your dog is at and you're, you know, what, what you're doing to them is inhumane, um, you know, and lazy. Absolutely. And, And there's a reason they're banned in all of Europe their mm-hmm. shot collars and prong collars are banned. Mm-hmm. Um, 90% of Canada, they're banned, you know, like we'll never get there in the U S cause we can't even ban assault rifles. Right. Um, you know, so there's that, <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. Right. Right. We're, we're going to do it. Let's do it. <laughs> I just, I know it's this uphill battle that I'm mm-hmm. still fighting. We're trying. They, they banned decoying in Maryland. So we're getting there. They sure did. We're, we're, we're almost there. there. Yeah. We're, we're getting there one state at a time, you know, yep, totally. we give up. we'll never get there, but we just got to keep, you know, keep, keep our trudging along. Absolutely. Absolutely. We got to hold these people accountable. We just, you know, we, we, we can't give up for so many reasons, but you know, I, I, I guess I had a come to Jesus moment. I was at the, I'm on the, the Maryland board for the veterinary medical association. And we were at Caitlin, Michelle and I were all at the meeting speaking of um, the ban on declawing. And what I realized is that some of the, the patriarch is still there and the younger generations are fighting to, to ban declawing and they're fighting to not ban it. So, and, and we'll have our podcast on the patriarch at some point. <laughs> oh, can I be on that one too? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yes, we're definitely going to have a podcast on that because I think that was a come to Jesus moment for us to kind of realize that we need a changing of the guard. It is totally. imperative <laughs> for us to make it. And I don't mean just in veterinary medicine. I mean, just in the country and in the totally. world, I think it's just time yeah. to have that come to Jesus yeah. moment. Yeah. So. But isn't it interesting that like, again, off topic patriarchy, like it's so interesting that like veterinary school has been predominantly women for a long time. I mean, Tasha, you were in a predominantly woman class like 18 years ago. I'm at my 20th this year. Like how do we still have the patriarch in veterinary medicine? It just boggles my mind. I mean, I, I do know that part of it is we are women and we have careers and children and families and all that kind of stuff. And so we don't always want ownership and all that, you know, kind of fun stuff, but like, can we just get rid of these old men? <laughs> I mean, but we, but we could have ownership and all of those things if our society was geared toward us having totally. it. If there totally. was such the stigma on being a working mom and making us feel guilty for being yeah. a working mom and having things in place like childcare and, you know, resources yeah. for us to be able to thrive. So the reason that we can't think about things like ownership and that sort of things, because the system is still set up for us to not totally. be working women. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you only get, I mean, a puppy can't, you can't legally sell a puppy in Virginia until it's eight weeks old. We're expected to go back to work at six weeks from having yeah. a kid. I mean, a damn dog has more maternity leave than we do. Totally. And so, yeah, totally. and again, if we, yeah, I mean, I teach my daughter very different mentally 
Mm-hmm. As far as how to think about these things, I remember, you know, trying to be a working mom and I was breastfeeding and I mean, it was so looked down upon. I mean, it yeah. was just unbelievable. But then we had the conversation about, you know, being a good mother and all those things, but then everything is stacked against us yeah. to, to do yeah. just that. Yeah. So, and mom you know, guilt is such a bitch. My... What's that? Mom guilt is such a bitch. <laughs> Oh yeah. But, but, but I think society puts up, you know, I was reading this, this meme, you know, like you and I are the meme queen. So yeah, yeah. I was reading this meme that says, you know, they make us feel guilty for being a stay at home mom. Well, you know, well, well, can't you work a little bit? And then if you work, it's, it, it, they mm-hmm. say, well, you know, well, can't you be at home a little bit more? Yeah. And so, but what I do find is a lot of that guilt comes from other women. It's not even the uh, men that comes from, that is the women true. Are hard, you know, the women are harder on me when it comes to you know, the things that I do as far as being a mom and being a working mom than men. Yeah, that so, is true. You know, I think we got to correct it with, with our own uh, gender first. That, that's but a very it, good point. That internalized yeah. misogyny. Yeah, yeah it really is. Really and is. projection. It's projection. You know, if you've got a woman who is a stay-at-home mom and uh, she's judging you for working, it's probably because she hates her fucking life. Yeah. She hates <laughs> sitting at home with her children all day long. She hates yeah. not being able to get out of the house right. and have adult conversations yeah. that don't involve her children. I mean, she's Misery rejected. Misery yeah. loves company is what it is. So, yeah. so, so don't even get me started. But I think part of the patriarch too is that they're holding on for dear life. And they, you know, oh, even if you look at the country, how they're holding on. That it's not true. that we're not trying to get their old fucking crusty asses out of here. It's just that they are literally holding up. It's like you're fucking 80. Fucking retire. No I mean, kidding. Congress or whether it's the, 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 the local vet clinic. Yeah. Um, retire and let some new ideas come through. Yeah. They're yeah. making ideas and, and rules for a, a profession and a world that they're not even going to be here to see. True. True. I, you know, I mean, yeah. like, bye. Yeah. So, you know, so, so that's a whole other, <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. And that totally gives us, because I don't think we had the patriarch as one of our, our podcasts. We did not. We did that. not. And we're going to have you back, Dr. Pike, because I mean, I, you yes. and I follow each other yeah. on, on social media and I know your passion for getting rid of the patriarch yeah. as much as, as mine. I don't, yeah. I don't know. We might have a competition of who wants to get rid of it. <laughs> It's very true. Very so true. Talk about it, Michelle and Caitlin and I. We talk about it every fucking day because it seeds into everything that we do every yeah. day. I had a client the other day. I was going to his house to do a euthanasia, and he said to the receptionist, "I thought you were going to send a mail vet." Oh my god, are you serious? Word to God. Oh my god, that's so gross. He said, "Who's going to help me lift this dog?" And I helped him lift the two hundred pound dog, and I put it in my car, and he hugged me. He goes, "I, I, I thank you so much for your help," but it's like. You yeah. Do, I mean, it, you know, it's in everything that we do. Yeah. I and to bring, mm-hmm. I was just going to say to bring this back full circle, interestingly enough, most of the shock trainers, the, the prong collar, the shock jocks, we call them mm-hmm. are male. And it's, it is such a toxic masculinity field. Um, and it's funny because my Luke uh, is one of my trainers. Oh. We had a conversation the other day and I said, um, you know, oh, I just love this one trainer, Steven in Annapolis. And he's like, why are you so like uh, admiring of this one trainer? He goes, I want to meet him. Cause you just talk about him all the time. And I said, you know what, honestly, it's because it is such a rarity in the positive reinforcement field to have a man, let alone a heterosexual man, um, right, right. like actually do amazing, wonderful, humane mm. training. Like mm. I, I think I project this, like, oh my God, they're like a God, right? Sure, Cause it sure. is, 
we are such a female dominated training industry on the positive force free side. And it's because of this whole patriarchy, masculinity, misogyny crap that's on the other, the other end of that spectrum. So. I had a client call me the other day. She said, I do the house call practice. And she said, you know, I really like your gentle touch. The male vet that, cause her dog was like fearful for getting nail trims. And she said, the way that you did it with like the cheese and she goes, the male vet that I take him to just holds him down and gets it done. And I said, well, how did that work out for him? She goes, yeah. he hates it, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, I think, you know, as we can slowly get them out, you know, when I go to conferences, they're all like at a, you know, at a table sitting around, you mm -hmm. know, and we, I, I literally say, that's the table of, we still box down cats, you know? <laughs> so true. Cause it's like, you know, they box down a cat so true. for hours, like, but, but I don't know, like, I, I don't know how we get them out of the profession, but even with just how they restrain dogs and how they just, yeah, we got to totally. get it done kind of mentality, how we get away from that. Because I, I mean, I can tell you now when we do house calls, we require gabapentin for every cat. I love it. Do, oh yeah. We do an assessment for the dogs um, based on like, we look at their last vet records. We talk to the client about what skill they're on. We will give them drugs in a New York minute. I probably need to be heavier on my trazodone gabapentin for dogs versus mm -hmm. Dr. Gallagher. She's not joking. Like, she's like, I'm gonna come in here and you're going to behave. <laughs> like I got to get to her level. But I mean, of, of course, it, you know, it helps the patient. It helps us to not be Absolutely. injured We're in the, the house environment as well. Mm -hmm. But, um, but again, I mean, I've been to practices and I do relief as well. And out here, well, we only give them drugs if they're really, really, really bad. Well, gosh, you missed the whole point. Totally. We give them drugs so that they don't get really, Don't really get bad. Exactly. You know? And so we, we just got to change that mindset. Yeah. I mean, trazodone and gabapentin are some of the safest things you can give. Totally. You know? But they wait until you got to give a dome to drop it for a nail trim. It's yep. mind boggling. Yeah. One. Yeah. <clears throat> That's the thing. And, you know, I, I remember again from my, from my clinical days where it's like, you know, well, can't you just try? Can't you just yeah. try? Do you think that, I mean, your dog is literally in here pissing on the table. Do you really want me right. to do that to the dog? Right. Do you really want me to like this dog literally thinks that something awful is happening to yeah. it? Why yeah. would you want that to happen as the, as the owner of this pet, as I the know. client, I as know. the, as the, you know, I just don't understand that mentality at all. I don't, I don't either. And I think, I think millennials honestly have been the best thing for like fear-free medicine sure. because millennial owners, I mean, you know, there's, there's some issues with thinking your animals are children. Cause of course they're <laughs> not children, but, but it has been beneficial because like you would never take your, your child to a dentist that just held them down, strapped them down and just did it, you know, they did like back in the they did back, they in, the did back in the day, they indeed, did. indeed. Absolutely. And dentistry is one of the first fear-free things that came about for kids. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so I think millennial owners have the fact that they advocate for their pets and for they, sure. you know, they want them to have the most comfortable experience. Like they yes. have actually been really, really good for the profession in general. And that's, that's one of the sentences that I say to clients, because I still have clients ask me, well, can't you just try? I look at them and I say, my job is to advocate for your dog. Yeah. She's showing me signs that she's uncomfortable. I know that it's going to inconvenience you to have us reschedule this appointment, but this is what we need to do. And I've never had anybody push back after I said I that. I love that. I love that. Well, it's only going to escalate. So like totally. you, you just try this time, you hold the dog down and then the next time you try and you do the same thing and it's just going to continue to get worse. And Why then you're going thing. to push the dog to that point where it does need mm -hmm. more intervention or, you know, it's, it's just, or it bites I don't get how people don't understand that. I, I don't either. I had a client come in the other day that they made the comment. They're like, yeah, they sedated my pet 
and it still took four people to hold it down for a nail trim. And I was like, wait, 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 like, did they inject a sedation? And they're like, no, no, no. They just gave it some trazodone. They sedated it. I was like, well, number one, that's not sedated. And number two, if that was enough trazodone, it shouldn't have taken four people to right. hold an animal right. down for right. a nail trim. Oh my like that's not okay. That's you know, right. and I, I walk a fine line too, sometimes in clinics with these, right. with these pets that need better care, mental health sure. care sure. from general practitioners. And, sure. you know, so it's like this, like subtle, like, have you thought about a new vet? You know, like right. I, it is, Absolutely. it's hard, right? Absolutely. No, I totally get it. I mean, I, again, when the client said, oh, we, they just hold them down. I mean, the dog that they were talking about was a 200 pound Anatolian shepherd. Oh my God. You don't hold that down. Exactly. And literally we trimmed its toenails with no, we gave it GABA. It had yeah. lots, and lots of GABA and trazodone. We did put a basket muzzle on it just to keep it honest. And yeah. the, we gave it treats. We gave him cheat like he love it. fine. And I love it. The owner was like, we'll see you back in two weeks. <laughs> I love that. I love that. For sure. I mean, zoo right, medicine has been like, can you, you can trim a lion's nails. You are not holding a lion down to yes. trim its nails, right? right? Like if you can teach a lion to put its paws on the, on the cage so that you can trim through the cage, yes. you can teach these animals to cooperate in their care. And Absolutely. it is, it's just, it, it's still mind boggling that we're still doing this. So, I mean, yeah. I, again, I think it, it's lazy and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, from a veterinary medical perspective, people are like, oh, well, the client's not going to want to come back. They're not going to be inclined to come back. And, you know, or they're, they're worried about making the client angry again, you know, with mm -hmm. inconveniencing them. Mm -hmm. But really at the end of the day, like, are you doing what's best for the patient? You right. know, right. I, it, we talked about this in our corporate medicine episode where we kind of talk about, we talk a little bit about the patriarchy and we talk a little mm -hmm. bit about, you know, uh, putting prioritizing profits over patient care. But right. at the end of the day, like if what you're doing is not in the best interest of the patient, why are you, why, why are, are you a vet? Why are you, why are you in this? Yeah. Get the fuck out. We don't want. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And I used to, you know, like 10 years ago, I used to talk to client or clinics rather uh -huh. about this whole thing. It's like, well, we don't want to piss the owner off. And like, they're just going to go somewhere else. Like now we are so overflowed with clients, like let them go somewhere else. That is not the type of client you want. If they are going to say, no, just do it and get it done. Right. Right. Like, no, you want the, the people that are going to be advocates for their own pets, just like you are. And they're going to want the best care. And Absolutely. that is the way we need to move forward. Absolutely. And, and, you know, one of the things that we have that I love is like a, we have a client code of conduct. And so I, love that. I think sometimes it's how you train your clients mm -hmm. because, you know, sometimes I am going to say things that are hard for a client to hear about their pet. Um, you know, I had a, a conversation with a client about their dog and their, and its weight and how, you know, part of the issue is that like, you know, and then again, I try to be, um, you know, gentle yet stern at the same mm -hmm. time. But I think part of it is, you know, with our client code of conduct, and many people have asked me for a copy of this because I'm like, listen, like you said, we we should be able to pick the clients that fit our, our model and just our concept. And I'm not okay with the client who wants me to, you know, harm their dog or stress their dog out to get his freaking nails. Right. Right. I mean, you know, it's not like I'm trying to, you know, it, 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 there's no reason that you should have to do that to a patient. Totally. There's no reason to be, you know, boxing down cats. Like there's so many, you know, like, I know I, I know. just clients that understand the philosophy. No, I'm not going to box your cat down, but I can give it some gabapentin. And then if we do more, we can do injectable sedation. Like yep. this is where we are. 
And so again, I think it's just a matter of us training our clients to where we need them to be. I train my clients. If you post something on social media about me, you will no longer be my client in the story. If there's an issue to be addressed, you come address it with me. I own the business and I'm the one that can fix it. So I think it's just a, a matter of changing our mentality on how we talk to clients about patients and not being afraid of to say to them, like your dog, we can't trim its nails today. Like, I'm sorry, but this is what we need to do to advocate for him. Yep. I love that. I love that. For sure. We will definitely invite you back to our patriarch uh, talk. That will be exciting. Um, Let me know some other people that might in the profession that you think might be good to kind of talk about that. Sounds maybe good. you know, maybe even the the woman who just took over the AVMA. I wonder what her experience. Oh, yeah, yeah, that'd be interesting to find out. Because one of the things that they were saying was that you know when they introduced the men who have been AVMA president, they're like the leader. Da, da, da. Did you just see that they called her Mama Bear? Yep. Yep. What are we doing I here? Know. I know. Mama Bear, have you ever called a man Papa Bear? No, no. And how many times, Tasha, Doctor Stark, have you been called Tasha? Absolutely. The men in our profession get called doctor all Absolutely. the time. And it's like, what? what's when the I difference? wear scrubs, why am I always asked if I'm, if I'm a nurse and not a doctor? You totally. would never ask a man in scrubs if he's a, a nurse. Totally. Yep. It's, 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 and again, but the thing that I find is that it's the women. I was at a client's house. Morgan witnessed it. She was pissed the other day. So I walk in and my scrubs say Dr. Stark or say Morgan. And she's like, oh, you must be Dr. Morgan. And Morgan was like, no, this is Dr. Stark. And then I'm euthanizing her dog. And her question was, have you ever sedated a dog before? Oh my God. <laughs> you, you, you could have a man that was 10 years old walk in the door and she would never right. ask him. Never, sedation. never. And I looked at her and I said, in 19 years of doing this, I've sedated lots of dogs. And I mean, it's a euthanasia. What, what could go, you know, like, I mean, <laughs> what could go wrong? I mean, <laughs> how, how could that happen? What's too die. much sedation in a euthanasia? Yeah. There, there's such thing. And so again, that, that's that that's one of the reasons in order for us to um, smash the patriarch, like we need to talk about this shit and yeah. put women on blast because the women are just as fucking true. bad as the men are. That is and we true. need to, but that is the elephant in the room that the women are just as bad as the men and they perpetuate this shit. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. You know, true. with our own gender. <laughs> I know. Rates of the men. I know. You know, yeah. I mean, and this kind of goes back into that same situation with that Florida clinic, but I also saw a lot of vet techs and other, you know, veterinary professionals commenting some nasty things. And so, again, it goes back to that internalized misogyny Support. and that projection <sighs> because it's like you are in this industry and you are knowingly, like, you know what's going on, you know about the suicide rate, and you are actively contributing to the mm-hmm. problem. And shit happens. For what? Shit happens. Right. I mean, right. I mean, nobody has, if you've never made a mistake in, in practice, you either use just today's your first day or you're lying. I mean, that's yeah. just, you yeah. know, some yeah. mistakes are worse than others, but it yeah. happens. Yeah. It's called we practicing call it, medicine for a reason. You took the exactly. word out. I yep. say we call it practice and not perfect for a yep. reason, you know? Yep. And so, you know, but again, you know, I, I mean, I've made mistakes, but what I have done is I've learned from them. Totally. And no. and that's what you have to do. You have to learn from your mistakes, yeah. right? Like, like just like the training stuff, I had prong collars, I had shot collars on my dogs. Sure. And when we know better, we do better, right? Okay. Like that is what we are all about as veterinarians or should be all about as right. veterinarians. Right. And that we just, we just need to do better for these animals. Absolutely. I always say experience means that I've made lots of mistakes that I've learned from. <laughs> when you say totally. I have lots of experience, that means totally. I've fucked up a lot and I've learned from it. And that's Absolutely. exactly what experience is for sure. Absolutely. 
So I think Thank the next so episode that we time. do, oh, yeah, absolutely. We yeah. are going to do um, so a women in vet med uh, episode. So we would love to have you back for that as well. I love I'm it. Talk, if I could just be a guest every week, I'll be a guest oh, every yes. week. Y'all are yeah. fun. And these conversations are, these conversations are so therapeutic. I mean, more than they anything, are. I think it's helping me talk through the trauma of this profession. Totally. Because I mean, and you know, I was telling someone the other day when I, I hadn't been back to my alma mater for 17 years mm-hmm. and I got invited to come speak. And so I was like, all right, I'll go down half. Like as I got closer to the school, I started crying and shaking and oh I just, my God. So much the trauma of being there. And so yeah. But just talking through a lot of this in the veterinary profession, I mean, we're the OGs, Dr. Pike. So we I got know. youngsters out. I mean, I, I read know. after post of like, I've been out for a year and I'm already burned out. I'm like, well, damn. I mean, I, I, mean, I know. I mean, we and how many of us tell people not to become veterinarians? I mean, I say that shit every day. That's why I'm like, you do not want me to be a guest speaker at your elementary school. Because <laughs> I'll tell you, don't do it. I'm crushing hopes up in this bitch, you know, like, yeah. I am both my kids. I'm like, do not become a vet, do anything sure. else. Be a stripper. I don't even care. Like do something. <laughs> you can make great money as a stripper. I mean, totally you know, only fans. So I've heard. So I'm really fans, yeah. Okay, I need. I'm gonna need that little, I, that little audio isolated as a promo. Be a stripper. <laughs> Don't be a vet. Be a stripper. Absolutely. Be I'm gonna need that should. to be. I'm gonna need that to be uh, a promo for be our a next stripper, episode. Be a bee. Love it. I mean, what? Be a beekeeper. <laughs> not. And I don't repeat. be a stripping beekeeper though. Don't be a stripping. No, beekeeper. those two things don't <laughs> combine. That's very painful. Do anything. I mean, I'm sure there's an audience for that somewhere, but. Oh my God. See, this is how they get me caught up in shit. And then I'm like, all the internet saying, be a stripper. And then my mom sees it. And it's like, baby, what do you mean be a stripper? My mom was, my mom asked about the podcast and I said, mom, don't do it. Oh God, how funny. (laughs) Don't listen. This is how this is how we get talking about Lorena Bobbitt, and you don't remember yes. you were talking about That's Lorena right. Bobbitt. I still don't remember talking about Lorena <laughs> Bobbitt. Be beekeeper. Oh my That's god. Her class is Stark. That's and your new quote. Then people in Sweden are like, "Oh, she said." Oh, I'm like, "How did they hear about this shit in Sweden?" Oh God, how funny! And I don't even yeah. know how our podcast is in so many flipping countries, but it's crazy. crazy. That's so cool. Is it what eleven countries now? Eighteen. Shut the fuck up. I just can't even imagine. That's awesome. How did you guys start it? Just out of like curiosity. Like, so, um, so Caitlin and I were on our way down to Alabama and we were just kind of talking about uh, things that we could potentially do to, you know, promote the business or that. And I was like, we came up with the idea to have a podcast. And so we just exploded from there and we were kind of coming up with different ideas and episodes. And really like our intention with this is kind of the same thing that we do with all four paws. It's to, you know, say to the industry, this is fucking bullshit and we're Mm -hmm. not going to tolerate it. And this Mm -hmm. is what needs to change. And this is how we need to evolve. And kind of getting this conversation to be a global conversation so that we can actually make some change. I love it. Uh, And so we just decided and we just started, like we had a a planning meeting where we kind of talked about all the things that we wanted to talk about. And the major one was like, what do you think is the number one issue in veterinary medicine? And like, what is the root cause of that? Mm -hmm. And so that has kind of been like, you know, the, we've come up with little ideas and, and each one of those is then an episode. So we have bad client behavior. We have toxicity in veterinary medicine and hospitals. We've got 
corporate, the corporatization of veterinary medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, that we're just kind of trying to come up with different things that we think are important to talk about and saying the the things that everybody is kind of whispering in corners, but kind of saying it. it in a more public, like in your face kind of way. And I mean, we don't know the first fucking thing about recording a podcast, yeah. but we were like, let's just get together and record this shit. I love it. Awesome. It's so easy. Honestly, is it really? Though, because yeah, so we we recorded the first episode on our iPads and our laptop nice. and yep. then converted it. And so I do all of the editing and uh, like producing in Adobe uh, Premiere Pro on my laptop. And then the platform that we use is called Anchor and Morgan actually found it. And so she showed it to us and essentially what you do is you upload it to anchor and then it distributes it to every major podcast platform oh, nice. and so we're on That's spotify cool. apple google yeah it's amazing and so it's really minimal effort as far as like getting it out onto those different platforms yeah. um the really big effort is in editing because <laughs> it's like the milliseconds of like cutouts uh, where we're yeah. you know yeah but other than that, it's Caitlin really is our Caitlin is our one woman show. Like she, it's crazy. She the, the amount of stuff that she does for the crazy. podcast and all for pause and vets to pets. She runs all of the social media. She coordinates all of the events. In addition to that, she handles all of the scheduling for all of our AFP doctors. Oh my god, she does help. She does. Help. She does the editing for the podcast. The events, I mean, all she's, our events. And and I just looked. We have now nineteen countries. We're also now in Latvia. Oh my God, that's crazy. I'm on Latvia. That's crazy. I just, well, that's the thing. You just have to start because we're all perfectionists. And like, the thing is, if we wait for it to be perfect, we're never going to start because it's never going to be perfect. And so like the audio of our first couple of episodes was like, and then we got mics and it changed the game for us. And so, you know, just kind of doing those little things as you go and, and you know, what, no podcast first episode is perfect so you know they're all they all have their things so i think you know just starting is a main thing and i'll share all of this stuff with you via email of like how it started and like the mics and everything i appreciate that see i love that women helping women instead of just bringing other women down that is totally totally and and i will thank you so much for joining us